as you can tell in my voice, got a little bit of a voice issue this morning, so pray that it will hold out here for <clears throat> a time, and, and uh, you'll just have to excuse me. I know I'm going to have to clear my throat here and there throughout the, this morning. Um, <clears throat> but as we begin here, I want to draw your attention to some of our announcements. Want to make sure I point out that due to the weather, we had to uh, reschedule our business meeting that was originally scheduled for this evening. We're, we're moving that till to next Sunday evening. So that's January 30th. It will be at 6 p.m. So that's the annual church meeting, January 30th, 6 p.m. next Sunday. Also next Sunday, we have our communion service that we're celebrating. That'll be in the morning service. And then you can just um, make note of the rest of the announcements that were in the bulletin um, that was sent out earlier this week. And also want to um, say or announce, I don't know what you call it, but we're not going to have a, a, a evening message this, this evening um, that we were having the church business meeting. And so since we're not having that, there's not going to be an evening message uh, either. So that's all we have for the announcements. I'm going to forego our scripture reading like we did last week because I want to try to save my voice as much as possible. And so just let me pray for us. And then we want to begin our uh, study here or continue our study in First Timothy. Lord, we give you thanks for this time that we have. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, you would preserve my voice through uh, this morning and that uh, you would receive glory. And Father, we, we are so thankful for your goodness to us and the fact that we can uh, meet remotely, I guess you would say, um, here with our technology. So, Lord, we, we thank you for that. Be with, be with our ability to do that. We pray that everything goes smoothly, that you would be glorified. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open and yielded to you. And that as we hear from your word, as we learn what it says, that we would be changed because of it. And so, Father, bless our time this morning. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're in chapter 4 now. And again, you'll have to excuse me. I got my cup up here so I can take a drink. And every now and then I'll have to turn my head and clear my throat. <clears throat> I'll try not to do that into the mic. But we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 this morning. One thing that we are concerned about, or at least should be concerned about as Christians, is any compromise within the church. Now, when I talk about compromise, I'm talking about real compromise. I mean, some people 
believe that churches have compromised because they're less formal in church now. In other words, you know, some people believe that churches who allow uh, allow services to take place and people, not everybody dress up in some way they've compromised. Or, or some people believe that when you do away with the pews of the church, you've compromised. Or you don't use hymnals, well, you've compromised. Or you don't use a King James Version, you've compromised. So some people think that's compromise. But the compromise that I'm talking about is the compromise that we see in our passage this morning, which speaks of a doctrinal issue. It speaks of false doctrine, a doctrinal error. And I think it's good for us to reflect on the fact that in the New Testament, whenever there is real compromise in the church, it is always, it is always, it is always based on false doctrine. Uh, the, the practices of compromise come from compromised doctrine. It comes from false doctrine. It always works this way. Compromise in doctrine comes first, and then the actions of those false doctrines follow. False doctrine comes, excuse me, false practice comes from false doctrine. Compromised doctrine leads to compromised behavior. So the definition and the identification of compromise is not found in a particular practice. It is found in relation to false doctrine. Now, it might be good for us to remind ourselves, what is true doctrine? What is what the Bible calls sound doctrine? True doctrine or sound doctrine are those things which the Bible clearly speaks about. And here's the, here's the little rub that goes along with that. If the Bible speaks about something, it can be understood might not be easy to accept, but it will be clear. Whatever the Bible teaches, when it's rightly understood, according to the grammatical, contextual, historical setting, according to the intent of the author, whatever that is, whatever the Bible says, is sound doctrine. And there's two things for us to consider in the relationship between sound doctrine and compromise. First, doctrine, teaching, is established by what the Bible says. Therefore, in order, us, in order for us to know sound doctrine, we must know the Bible. In order for us to know the Bible, we must study the Bible. We must study its words, its composition, its culture, and its historical setting. It is only through the study of the Bible do we know sound doctrine, and it's only by knowing sound doctrine that we know how to live for the Lord. So sound doctrine prevents compromise. Secondly, 
when compromise is an issue, since compromise is an issue related to sound doctrine, we cannot accuse others of having compromised the faith based upon our own personal preferences and convictions. Now, we have every right to have personal preferences and convictions, but we do not have the right to hold others to those uh, convictions and preferences. To accuse someone else of compromise because their preferences and their convictions are not the same as ours is to put ourselves in the place of God and his word as the authority. And in other places, we just simply call that idolatry. And so this issue of compromise in the church is very important. Paul is going to speak about that. But we have to remember, compromise is connected to doctrine. It's a doctrinal issue at its core. And so let's take a look at this passage we have before us this morning and to see what Paul is writing about when it comes to compromise. Notice in verse 1, we have the warning of compromise. The warning of compromise. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. As we consider this phrase in verse 1, we see who the warning is from. Who the warning is from. It's from the Holy Spirit. Says now the Spirit expressly says. So this is talking about divine revelation, divine communication, a message from God, God's word. And it's clear communication. The phrase here, the Spirit expressly says. Expressly is the word clear. The Spirit clearly says. So God's word is clear. It's not always easy to interpret, but anytime there's a problem understanding God's word, the problem is not with the word of God. The problem is with us. Um, We haven't connected the dots that are there. The dots are perfectly good. They're perfectly fine. God's word is perfectly clear. The problem is us. So we see that this warning is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, This warning is in reference to latter times. Latter times here, it says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times. Now what does that refer to, latter times? Is it referring to the last days? It's not the same words. But is it referring to the last days? Does it refer to the end times? Well, This phrase probably just means in days to come. In the days to come, there will be some who depart from the faith. So there's a hint of future. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is pointing to the future here. But there's also the sense that it's imminent, imminent. 
Now, that word imminent just means it can happen at any time. So we believe that the rapture of the church is imminent, can happen at any moment in time. And I think that's the idea that's being expressed here when it says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, in the days to come, which could be tomorrow, some will depart from the faith. So we see that the warning is from the Holy Spirit. We see that the warning refers to the latter times. And we see that this warning is about departing from the faith. To depart from the faith means you first had to be in the faith. So to depart from the faith means that these people who are departing, these people who are compromising were Christians. Last Sunday evening, we began to look at the doctrine of eternal security or eternal salvation, what our doctrinal statement calls concerning the security of the saints. I was planning to continue that study this evening when we had our annual meeting, but since we're not having our annual meeting, we're not going to have that. It'll be next week. And in that doctrine, this doctrine of eternal security, we believe that when you are saved, once you are saved, you can never lose your salvation. So I just want to give you six reasons that a believer can never lose their salvation, because I want you to see that these people who are departing from the faith, they're not departing from their salvation. They're departing from Christian truth. And we might have a hard time accepting the fact that you can depart from Christian truth and still be saved, but the testimony of God's word is that that is true. You can still be saved and depart from the faith. So let me give you six reasons why a believer can never lose their salvation. Number one, the only condition for salvation is to trust in the work and person of Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the only condition, faith in Jesus Christ. When, when a person has faith in Christ as their Savior, it sets into motion a number of things that God does that you have no control over, and he does them immediately. He makes you a new creation. He forgives all of your sins based upon the death of his son, Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. The Holy Spirit is given to you as a guarantee of your salvation and inheritance. And there's more things that happen. But all these things happen. They're irreversible. And they're set into motion immediately upon your faith in Jesus Christ. So the condition... For salvation is faith, not faithfulness. The condition is faith in Jesus Christ, not faithfulness to Jesus Christ. This is the only condition, and it sets forth th this pattern of events that God does, not you. Number two, the second reason a believer can never lose their salvation is eternal life is everlasting life. It's not just life for a little while. It's not life until you sin again. It's not 
life until you depart from the faith. It is eternal life. How could it be spoken of as eternal life if it wasn't eternal, if it was losable, if it was only temporary? It's eternal life. Number three, third reason you can't lose your salvation as a believer Because when you believe, you are said to have eternal life. Have eternal life. In other words, eternal life is now your possession. It's your inheritance. It's been given to you by God. And God is the one who he himself keeps that inheritance, that possession for you. You have eternal life. Fourthly, the fourth reason that a believer can never lose their salvation is that the writers of Scripture speak of salvation in such a way that they assume that all of salvation, your full experience of salvation, is done. It happened in the past, they speak of it as a past event, and that just raises the certainty of it now. And they speak of your salvation, the full experience of it, as something that is done now. And we know, though, that we will not experience our full salvation until we're face to face with our Lord. But nevertheless, the biblical writers speak of believing on the one hand And in the same breath, they say, you were sanctified, you were justified, and even you were glorified. All past tense. So they speak of the full experience of our salvation as something that's already done and already accomplished. Fifthly, the fifth reason a believer can't lose their salvation is God the Father, the most powerful being, is the one who keeps it for you. So the only way that you could lose your salvation is that you would have to be more powerful than God the Father, which is obviously not true. And finally, in salvation, this is number six, in salvation, your righteous standing before God is based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness which has been imputed to you. God only sees the believer according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hard for us to believe, hard for us to contemplate and accept, especially when we know the sinfulness of our own hearts. But when God looks at the believer, he only sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so even those believers who depart from the faith, who compromise the doctrine of the church, can never remove themselves from the salvation that God has given to them. Now, this doesn't mean a believer can live any way they want. Uh, Paul's very clear in Romans chapter 6 that believers aren't saved to live for themselves, but they're saved to live for God and to serve him. And and the warnings we see in the New Testament about the believer, warnings about sin, these are not warnings about the loss of salvation. 
These are warnings about losing fellowship with God, losing the joy of your salvation in the present, and also losing of reward in heaven to come. So this is what, this is what we need to understand about eternal security. Departing from the faith is a serious thing. It is a huge compromise, but departing from the faith does not mean you lose your salvation. So we see here the warning of compromise. Some will depart from the faith. Some will compromise sound doctrine. So we need to be watchful for ourselves. We need to watch out for ourselves that we are not some who depart from the faith. And we need to be vigilant for those among us that they do not depart from the faith. Now, why would these people who were once in the faith, why would they depart from the faith? Why would they compromise sound doctrine? Look at the second part of verse 1. Here we see the reason, the reason for the compromise. They were paying attention to demonic influences. It says, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So Paul here is relating the compromise of sound doctrine, the belief of false doctrine, he's relating it to demonic influence. I think, I think oftentimes we're way too quick to attribute false doctrine that some people believe or unchristian behavior that some people take part in. We, we, we way too often are quick to either, um, you know, attribute that to ignorance or some type of innocence of that person. They just don't know. You know, certainly they wouldn't willfully just choose false doctrine, would they? Well, I think we're way too quick to, to, to kind of attribute everything to just man and his own mind or his inability to understand things. When Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, I think it's verse 12 tells us that there is a spiritual warfare that's going on and it's a spiritual warfare against believers. And so we do not need to uh, limit what we think the effect of demonic influence might be even over Christians. Christians can't be possessed by demons, but demons can influence us through all sorts of means. And we are a a people who are easily influenced, easily influenced. One of the biggest challenges in our culture today is trying to control what we allow to influence us. What do you expose yourself to? What do you allow to influence your mind? What are you putting into your mind. It matters who you listen to. It matters who you pay attention to. You know, you should think about your children and grandchildren. 
because they have a challenge that probably most of you have, uh, well, you just didn't have. You didn't have. And that's the challenge of the Internet, where you have vast amounts of information. Some of it's good. Much of it is false. But they have access to it. And the one thing that the Internet doesn't do for anybody is it doesn't discern good from evil. It doesn't tell you what is right and what is wrong. And so our children come under the influence. They spend so much time on the Internet, whether it's on a computer or on their phone or whatever device it might be, and they're just all this influence is coming on them. It's not just entertainment. It's not just games. It's not just TV shows. It's influence. And we need to be careful who we're paying attention to and who we let our children and grandchildren pay attention to. Because you better believe it, that Satan knows how to manipulate the Internet. He knows how to manipulate things to be very appealing to us, even as Christians. And that's what's happening here. Some of these people were departing, some of these believers were departing from the faith because they were paying attention to deceiving spirits, lying spirits, and the doctrines of demons. So that's why they compromised. Instead of listening to God, they were listening to demonic doctrine. And then once we move from the reason of the compromise, we see the results of the compromise in verse 2. The results of the compromise. Lying and a seared conscience. Lying and a, and a seared conscience. It says in verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Really, it just says seared. The hot, hot iron's implied there. So notice the results of compromise. What happens when you listen to the wrong people? What happens when you listen to the wrong doctrine? What happens when you're not listening to God, when you're not listening to sound doctrine? Well, once you start paying attention to the wrong thing, it leads to you repeating, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Hypocritical lies. And it leads to your conscience being seared. This is the warning. This is what he's saying. That some, having departed from the faith, paying attention to the wrong things, results in them speaking, repeating these same lies and having their conscience seared. Now, what does it mean to have a seared conscience? It means you're no longer able to tell the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. That's what a seared conscience is. You don't know what right is. You don't know what wrong is. In fact, one, one um, indication of a seared conscience is you reverse things. What is good, you call evil, and what is evil, you call good. Paying attention to the wrong things and the wrong people leads to repeating 
wrong doctrines. And as one goes down this path, things only get worse. Think about it. Think about how this works. No one sets out to destroy their life. Nobody does. But very often what we see is that the end of a pattern of wrong choices, there is destruction. No one gets married planning to get a divorce. Nobody does. A drug addict or an alcoholic doesn't say, I plan to wreck my life with drugs and alcohol. Nobody does that. No believer starts out aiming to compromise their faith. What happens is a slow, subtle process where you listen to the wrong people. You're hanging out with the wrong crowd. You're listening to the wrong teaching, the wrong doctrine. And you know, compromise in the Christian life never begins with the most egregious sin. It never begins with heresy. It always begins with little compromises. Little things that lead to you gradually accepting bigger things, bigger falsehoods, and then living according to those false doctrines. And so the results of compromise mean that not only do you listen to false doctrine, but you start perpetuating false doctrine, and you come even to the point of not being able to tell what is right and wrong. That's what Paul is saying here. And then as we get to verse 3, he points out some particular areas of doctrinal compromise. So here we see the doctrines of compromise. No marriage and limited foods. No marriage and limited foods. In verse 3, it says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. Two things. First one, can't get married. So this is the result of demonic doctrine that has been paid attention to and now is repeated. And so these false teachers, these some who have departed from the faith, they're, said, they're saying you can't get married. Now, why would someone say you can't get married? Why would somebody say it's wrong for you to marry? Well, a pious person might say, well, because a marriage would distract you from serving God. Some, some people in the past, believe it or not, have actually said, since marriage involves a physical relationship with your spouse, and physical is worldly, that means physical is evil, that means marriage involves evil and it should be avoided. And people make up all sorts of things to justify uh, things like this, saying no marriage. But we know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Even though Paul said it would be good to be like him, single like him, he not only never prohibits marriage, 
But he, in fact, he says, if you don't have the gift of singleness, you must get married. You must get married. And so when these people say no marriage, they're going against what God has designed for man, that there, that there be marriage. Then, then they also say to abstain from food. So some foods are off limits. Now, we're not told exactly what these foods are here, but I think an educated guess would be that they're talking about the foods that were prohibited under the Mosaic law, considering the context of our letter here that we're studying. So you can't eat, can't eat these. You got to stay away from these foods. So these false doctrines that are being talked about are producing some type of asceticism. You know, asceticism is denying yourself pleasure, thinking that you're being spiritual. You deny yourself your wants and needs, thinking that it produces spirituality. And can I tell you, Christians from the early church on have tried to do this and it doesn't work because sin while it is an issue of action foundationally it's an issue of the heart and so you can not steal but you can still covet you cannot murder but you can still hate and i think there was a wise man one day who talked about all this I think his name was Jesus, and he did it on the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back and read in Matthew, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, what's it, 5 through 7, you see that Jesus addresses these very things. Asceticism, denying yourself, your wants and pleasures, just because you think that it produces spirituality in yourself, does not work. These things no marriage, you can't have these foods, are related to the doctrines of demons. Denying these things doesn't work. It doesn't work practically. But there's an even bigger error than the fact that these things aren't practically workable. And so in verses, or the second part of verse 3, through verse 5, we see the error of this compromise. The error of this compromise. Let me sum it up with this. The fundamental error of the compromise of following these doctrines is that it goes in direct contradiction to what God has said. Look at what it says here, middle of verse 3 which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So follow Paul's logic. There are some who will depart from the truth, who will compromise 
sound doctrine. They will do this because they are giving heed, they're paying attention to demonic influence, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. They're paying attention to that, and then they're repeating that, speaking lies in hypocrisy, even having their conscience serious. They don't even know what's right and wrong anymore. This comes out in things like there is no marriage. You cannot be married and you can't eat this food or that food. And these are two areas, areas of marriage and food that these people are taking stands against. They're creating doctrines about. It is in these areas that these who depart from the faith believe contrary to the word of God and speak contrary to the word of God. So these people are going against what God says. It says in verse 3 that these, it's talking about the foods here specifically, but it says God created these things, these foods, for you to enjoy, for you to receive with thanksgiving. So you can receive it and be thankful for it. And as a believer and someone who knows the truth, you know that this is what God has said. In verse 4, it tells us that everything God has created is good. That that takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. It's good and it's to be accepted. It's not to be refused. It's to be accepted on the condition, on the condition of thankfulness with thanksgiving to God. Why can you accept all the food that God has created for you? Why can you accept it with thanksgiving? tells us in verse 5, for it, all this stuff just talked about, for it is sanctified, it is made holy, it is made acceptable by the word of God and prayer. In other words, God said it was okay. God said you could eat this food. So what I I want us to see here is that ultimately the compromise of sound doctrine results in contradicting what God has said. And so what's what's the universal biblical principle that we see here in this passage? Well, what we see here is that some people are going to depart from sound doctrine. These people... Stop paying attention to the word of God, and they start paying attention to demonic influence. They they start paying attention to the wrong people and the wrong thing. And not only do they pay attention to the wrong people and follow the wrong thing, the wrong doctrines, they perpetuate these doctrines, speaking lies, because they can no longer tell the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. 
And they ultimately are going to say things that are in direct contradiction to what God has said. So the principle that we see is that when a person does not hold to sound doctrine, when they do not maintain sound doctrine, it can lead that person all the way to the point of contradicting God himself. Because sound doctrine is based on what God has said. We see many, many examples of this. But let me, let me close by giving you five lessons, five quick lessons that we see here in these verses. Five important lessons. Number one, As we conclude, number one, God has spoken clearly. God has spoken clearly. The word of God, the Bible, is clear. This is called the doctrine of the perspicuity. That's a big word. Maybe maybe it's a new word, perspicuity of the scriptures. That's just a fancy way to say the clarity of the scriptures. God has revealed his word in an understandable way to be understood. We cannot avoid being obedient to the word of God by saying it's vague or ambiguous. I've already said, if you have a problem understanding the word of God, the problem is not the word of God. The problem is with you. The problem is with us. God has spoken clearly. God's word is clear. The second lesson we learn here is that knowing and maintaining correct doctrine matters. Knowing and maintaining correct doctrine matters. You know, there is nothing that God has revealed that is unimportant. Nothing that God has revealed is unimportant. Even when we might consider to be mundane things, common things, or trivial things, they all matter. You know, in the Bible, when it mentions that a certain person was in a certain place, for a certain number of days, a certain amount of time. All of that matters. Every single bit of it. If it didn't matter, if it wasn't important to the message of God, it wouldn't be there. Even the little things, what we might consider minor things, matter. Knowing and maintaining sound doctrine matters. Thirdly, doing sound doctrine matters. Doing sound doctrine matters. We could just sum that up with one word, obedience. It's not enough just to know correct doctrine. We must also obey it. To know to do what is good and not to do it is sin. We must be doers of the word and not hearers only. We can't just know 
we must do. We must be obedient to the word of God. We must put our faith, our sound doctrine into practice. Fourthly, we need to understand, here's our fourth lesson, we need to understand that false doctrine will always be followed by erroneous practices. In other words, false doctrine produces false practices. When people err, it's always preceded by either ignoring or replacing sound doctrine. This is a, a, a truth. One, one of the areas that 10 years ago everybody thought was well away but now has raised its head in the church again, is the social gospel. Uh, what, where does the social gospel come from? Back at the turn of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, there's a big issue with the social gospel. And what's the social gospel? The social gospel says that salvation involves doing good for the sake of society, making society better. Salvation is trusting in Jesus, yes, but it's also solving all the ills of society. Making sure there's no homelessness. Making sure everybody is taken care of. This is salvation. These people get their view of salvation, I believe, from their false view of the kingdom. They believe Christ is ruling and reigning over his kingdom right now, and it's their responsibility to live under the kingdom rules and standards and enforce it. Well, this is wrong. This is false doctrine. Christ is not ruling and reigning over his kingdom. He will only rule and reign over his kingdom when he comes. How can you have a kingdom without a king? This false doctrine has led even to the compromise of the gospel. False doctrine will always be followed by false practices. Compromised doctrine produces compromised behavior. And fifthly, we need to understand that the path to compromise is subtle. It is not a steep slope. It is a minor or mild downward grade. You know, you've been driving on the interstate in the mountains somewhere and you'll see a sign, a yellow sign, a diamond, and it's got a angle on it like that the road's angled and there's a truck on it and it'll say something like seven percent or nine percent grade or something like that and that's telling you there's a steep grade ahead and if that truck isn't careful they're going to lose control the brakes are going to go out and and they won't be able to stop and they're going to end up crashing compromise is not a steep grade compromise is a shallow slope Because it just happens little by little, little by little. And by the time you figure out you've gone too far, you've just gone too far. You're already there. 
You're at the end. You're in the deep end already. And so because of this, we must be on guard to make sure our allegiance is to the word of God and sound doctrine. Don't play with fire. Don't get close to the edge. The only thing that can happen on the edge is you can fall off. We don't need to do that. We need to study the word of God and remain faithful to it. We must weigh everything against what the Bible says. Remembering that compromise in big things always begins with compromise in little things. Nobody comes out and and denies the deity of Jesus Christ, just denies the deity of Jesus Christ. They start with far smaller things. Like, they start to deny that every part of the Bible is the inspired word of God. And once they do that, they start to deny these other things, and it gets bigger and bigger till ultimately Jesus isn't even God. Direct contradiction against God's word. The path to compromise is subtle. God has spoken clearly. Knowing correct doctrine matters. Doing correct doctrine matters. False doctrine will always be followed by false practices. So let's pray together that we stand solidly in the sound doctrine of God's word and not depart from the faith. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this time that we've had together. Thank you for sustaining my voice. Lord, may we be people who always adhere to sound doctrine, that we would never depart from the faith. Give us discernment and give us sensitivity to understand the times that we live in, to understand what people are saying is true, so that we might uh, not be caught in the subtle uh, compromise in doctrinal areas. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.